I grew up with computers. And to me, I think the urgency has come because I could always see that computers were a way to make the world, I don't want to say a better place. It, it, yes, a better place, but also just an easier place for people, right? That computers were eventually going to really, really help. But there was always this sort of need for computers themselves to get better, to get faster. And then for me to be able to take advantage of that. And I always felt like there was this race between computers and myself in some ways. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. Well, first of all, it's good to see you. I wish we were doing this in person and we would not be worrying about technology getting in our way. Do you consider yourself an OCD person? Like, does this piss you off that my mouth and words are a half second off? No, it doesn't bother me too much. You know what bothers? I am OCD about certain things, though. You know, it's little things sometimes that bug me the most. Like, um, I'm somewhat infamous internally, like the slides, if you have like slides and the slides aren't perfectly aligned from one slide to another in terms of spacing and things like that. I, it's just what I see. It's the weirdest, you know. Do you call it out? I do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> like, can you even read the content of the slide at that point? No. <laughs> no. My my focus is just straight there. Okay. And, so you and are I didn't OCD. realize I was doing that. I didn't realize I was doing that. And it was, uh, I'm trying to remember. So it was recently when we, uh, you know, I hired Melton, who is my new uh, chief marketing officer. And I was commenting on some slides and I was noticing that. And, and I was on with uh, Jeannie and Julian, two of my other execs. And they were like, you know, welcome to the club, Melton. <laughs> you know, you, you now see how Jeff reads slides. <laughs> so <laughs> apparently that's apparently that's something I do. Are you like that at home too? Are there things like that that trigger you at home? Not much. The one thing that my son's uh, 23 now, and so he finds it odd because I work at home just up to like in the evenings, work at home and sit on the couch. Most things don't bother me at all, but like a repeating noise, like if he's tapping his foot or something like that drives me absolutely batty. And he's like, of all of the other noises, that's the one that you call out and ask me to stop. So apparently, uh, apparently I have some of those. <laughs> How about when you sleep? When I sleep, I have to have a fan on no matter what I pay. It's embarrassing. I pay like two ninety nine for a fan app, which everyone's like, oh, well, Jubin, you could use Spotify. No, no, no. This is the app. So when I'm traveling, I can use the fan app. I need it to be able to fall asleep. Do you have anything like that? No, I can sleep absolutely anywhere at any time. Now I did consulting, like I was on Road Warrior for six and a half years. Yeah. So I think that's helped, but I can sleep bright, dark, loud, quiet, doesn't matter. Most nights I fall asleep with the computer on my lap on the couch. So no you problems do? with sleeping. You fall asleep with the computer on your lap? Most nights. Absolutely. Like it's just- You're kidding me. No. And it works out quite well because my wife is a little more sensitive to noise than me. So- if I go to sleep, you know, try and go to sleep at the same time as her, I claim we both snore. Uh, and so she can't go to sleep, whereas I can. And so it works out perfect. I fall asleep on the couch. You know, I sleep there for a few hours. I tend to wake up. I really like it because I tend to wake up usually around three or so. And then I'll be up for a few hours and just sometimes doing work, sometimes doing YouTube or whatever. And then I'll go upstairs for a couple of hours in the morning just so we can spend some time together. But yeah, I do not have normal sleeping 
patterns by any stretch of the imagination. Do you go back upstairs and sleep after you're up for a few hours? Yeah, because I'll go to sleep usually midnight, one o'clock, and I'll go to sleep for just uh, two to three hours, and then I'll be up for two to three hours, and I'll go to sleep again for another couple of hours. So You're be, kidding me. Uh, yeah, sleep is not something that's normal for me. I mean, I, I don't put alarms on. My body goes to sleep when it's tired, wakes up when it's when it needs to, but I don't get much sleep at all, maybe four hours. Oh, so there must be internally some infamy around you firing off emails at three, four in the morning. I try very hard to avoid that. <laughs> I tried very hard to avoid that. Um, but at the same time, I mean, we've got a bunch of folks out in Europe, so it works out great from that perspective. Is the laptop open when you're falling asleep? Like when you're oh, asleep, yes. like when you wake up, you wake up with an open laptop on your lap? I have not broken one and I have no idea how. I have no idea how I haven't broken one because I mean... It's remarkable it hasn't just fallen over onto the floor and smashed into a million pieces. Don't take this the wrong way, but do you have hobbies? I do. Um, like, is work a hobby? Would you consider work a hobby? I don't know a hobby. It is my life. I hate to say it that way, but it's who I am. It's what I do. My yeah. hobby is tractors. You know, I have a farm. I don't actually run the farm. we got a real farmer that runs the farm. But my hobby is spending time on my tractor and my excavator and, and out there playing farmer when I get a chance. So, so when, you're, when you're stressed out, when the world is falling apart, around you you get on the tractor i get on a tractor or i get on the excavator i'm digging holes i spent the last um probably a year or so we had a bank barn just a giant 50 by 50 foot barn from the 1800s the mid 1800s and it had fallen down and i've spent like the last year out there just cleaning up endless piles of hay and old wood and stone and everything and i just it's just that relief it's just that it's therapeutic for you yeah, it's 100% therapeutic and I'm in no rush. Like it's not stressful because I don't have a deadline where that's got to be fixed or anything like that. It's just clean it up at my own time with big trucks. Uh, and I, I enjoy both of those. Are you ever in a rush? From a work point of view? Yeah, absolutely. You got to move at the speed of technology. You feel a, a tickle in your belly in the work setting, but when it's off, it's off. I choose, I'll say hobbies specifically so it can be off. Mm. So, you know, the farm to me is a great example. If I had to actually run the farm, that becomes stress. Since we've got, you know, a real farmer who tends to the, it's row crops. So there's no animals, they're just crops. And so the farmer tends to that. I've got a small plot of land as a part of it that I'm trying to turn into a hay field for no apparent reason other than to have fun. But because I don't put the pressure on me of getting it done or taking a certain amount of time to get things finished, I don't find it stressful. And I don't think I would enjoy it if I did. I keep too much of the stress for work. You seem to be in pretty good shape too. Do you work out? Uh, a lot less than I used to. Yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I do. I try and get in some exercise a few times a week. Uh, it was, you know, my son who really kept me in shape uh, for a number of years. He's got his own place now, obviously he's 23, but uh, for a number of years, it was him and I, we have turned our garage into a bit of a gym and he was into a bunch of strongman stuff and got far stronger than me, but it was just fun to you know play together. Yeah. I ask because the thing that you do on your farm, it reminds me of the way that I run. Running is my version of your tractor. And if I measure myself running, I lose all enjoyment. I can't actually measure it. It can't be for any other reason other than me putting my running shoes on and just going for a run. 
And the minute that I start feeling some sense of responsibility, or maybe even something as simple as an ability to improve on a previous milestone, it sucks the soul out of it for me. I don't know if that resonates. A hundred percent. Now I'm not a runner. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've tried to run, but I've, it turns out I'm not a runner, but yeah, no, I understand because for a long time ago, it used to be Lego and that was my thing. And I had a Lego store, you know, like an online store. And, uh, cause I did e-commerce for a number of, of years. I was part of my job back in the days when I worked at IBM. And so I, in my off hours, I would just have like a Lego store online through what's now, you know, like one of the marketplaces called Bricklink. And it was great because it was enough attention. I te- needed enough attention just in sorting pieces and things like that. Cause I sold by the piece that I could be distracted from work, but not enough attention that it gave me stress. And I think the second you try and hit a, a goal, you try and hit a mark or you try and better something. I think there's something in us that turns that into, I don't say work, but turns that into stress, turns that from pure enjoyment into a mission. And there's nothing wrong with that. But to me, there's something wrong with that. If this is your relaxation, if this is your way of calm blue oceaning. And to me, that's what, you know, Lego was and now tractors are. Yeah. It has to, there has to be a way to turn off the competition. Yes. And it's a competition with yourself. That's the worst part, right? I think a lot of people, the competition is almost always with themselves. And that's true of work as it is for your case in in running, if you let it. And it's not that, you know, from a running point of view, you don't want to do well at running. But I think to your point, like if you all of a sudden turn it into, I got to set my fastest time, then all of a sudden running becomes the mission as opposed to running becomes the freedom from the mission. Yeah. It's almost like I never set out if I'm looking at the time to run my fastest time. I never think about that. It's just the nature of the measurement. It fires up the animal inside of me that should be reserved for times that are probably channeled more appropriately. Like let's say work, (laughs) you know? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Is it Jeff versus Jeff at work too? Meaning do you eat yourself alive at times? Are you your own worst enemy? I think so. There's a lot of people that are driven by what I call fear of failure. And I think I'm one of them. And that's not necessarily bad. I mean, it sounds negative. It sounds like a negative term, but I don't think it's a negative term. In other words, I'm not in this for the glory by any stretch of the imagination. I'm in this because I believe in one password. I believe in our mission. I think the people we've got around us are awesome. But there's also that side of me that that wants to ensure I don't fail as opposed to wants to see me succeed, if that makes any sense. In the same way that I want people to say, what am I doing poor? Like, okay, subconsciously, yes, I want to hear that I'm doing well, but I I want that to be said sort of quickly. And then let's go on to the things that I can improve or let's go on to the things where I'm not doing well. And I think that's just what drives me. But yeah. it is a competition with myself. Yeah, I relate to that. So I'm 55. I grew up as computers grew up. You know, my dad was a teacher at Sinclair College in Windsor and he taught electrical engineering and it was a trade college. So it was electrical engineering for electricians, but he would bring home, even before the computers, these, it looked like a suitcase and it had in there uh, like a hex keypad and you could do very, very simple, I'm going to call it programming on the hex keypad. And it was attached to a digital to an analog converter. So you could actually have it turn on lights for 60 seconds and things like that. Very, very simple computers. Then he eventually brought me to the college when they got the, I think it was original Vax Fortran machine. And I was programming on punch cards and 
you know, then I was 13. I think when I got my first somewhere around 13, maybe, maybe even a little bit later, I got my first computer, which is the Commodore 64 in the somewhere around 83. I forget when I grew up with computers. And to me, I think the urgency has come because I could always see that computers were a way to make the world, I don't want to say a better place. It, it, yes, a better place, but also just an easier place for people, right? That computers were eventually going to really, really help. But there was always this sort of need for computers themselves to get better, to get faster. And then for me to be able to take advantage of that. And I always felt like there was this race between computers and myself in some ways. Because the very early computers, I'm mean, going to turn a light on for a few seconds. And, and and that was about the extent of what it could do with the Fortran compilers. I, again, I was quite young at the time, probably 10. And I was just doing very simple programs with it. But I could see the computers advancing. Commodore 64 was a huge leap forward, you know, in my mind. And then it just continued. So I think it's just become that race of, I call it, moving at the speed of technology that's driven me and computers are moving really quickly. Obviously, you know, most recently the boom in AGI has been a an example of that. And I think it's always been that race of how do we, you know, how can I take advantage of the continual and constant and dramatic improvements in computers and stay up with the ability that technology has, but in a way that that I can use it to make our lives easier. So I, I think it's less about necessarily something that that I saw or happened to me directly and more just I grew up and computers grew up at the same time and they've just grown up a little faster and better than I have. Yeah, but where's the what's the failure? The failure is what not keeping up. Yeah, absolutely. When I was young, I was so much smarter than computers and faster than computers and all of this. They've just very reasonably, you know, surpassed me in leaps and bounds. And there's just that I hate to call it this way, but almost a how do I bend the computers to my will sort of mentality of how do I get the computer to do the thing that I want it to help people? And it's been a race for sure. Yeah. Shows up in control a little bit for you too. It does show up in control. I'm, I don't micromanage by any means, but yeah, I, I think anybody who's driven like that, like we are there, there's definitely things that I want to see that I expect to see. And like margins on a PowerPoint. <laughs> Spacing, but yes, That's <laughs> in, general, right, spacing. in general, it's funny because I am not, I wish I had a, a design bone in my body. I don't, but I, that bothers the heck out of me. I can see it. It's off by pixels. It's like, it shouldn't be off by pixels. <laughs> I subconsciously count stairs as I go up them and I get a great satisfaction when they're tens or twenties or thirties. Some anyway, maybe there's something's wrong with us. You're in Waterloo, right? That's where you're based? I am. I'm in Waterloo, yeah. You went to school there. You got your BA there in math and comp sci. Weren't you working on some e-commerce stuff most of your career before you joined 1Password? Does it not strike you that in some parallel universe, you should have either started Shopify or been one of the early <laughs> employees of Shopify? <laughs> Tell me that hasn't crossed your mind. I mean, come on. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, it's absolutely crossed my mind. So it's, it's kind of interesting because in many ways, that's what we started doing. So I worked at IBM for a number of years. I actually worked in compilers at IBM. Then I left and went to a startup. But IBM brought me back in the very late 90s to build e-commerce for them. And actually, the very first part of e-commerce that we were building was called NetCommerce Hosting Service. And it was meant to be for hosting of e-commerce. It turned into, we turned it into Webster Commerce, which was more enterprise level uh, e-commerce, which makes sense with IBM. But yeah, it was a hundred percent that, you know, I look at what Toby and that have done with Shopify. It's been uh, remarkable. 
Yeah, I remember selling Lego very early on eBay, but wasn't smart enough to buy stock. I mean, you know, things things you just don't do, but I'm a product person. I want to use them and try them. But yeah, I think e-commerce was, it was really exciting. It still is really exciting to me because there's many of the same problems we've got in security that we do with e-commerce. Because I remember at the very early days, it was nobody really did shopping online back in the 2000, 2001, you know, just after the boom, it was people were browsing online, right? And the businesses started to see it and started to recognize, okay, we got to take this seriously because our brand is out there. But then it became this big challenge of like the first e-commerce was like the checkout was 12 pages and nobody could figure out how to fill in all of the information. And it was just super clumsy. And then, you know, I remember like you went through like uh, probably five years, at least it's probably still ongoing of how can we make this process simpler? How can we make it easier for humans? And it's the same sort of thing with security. I guess just people want to be secure, but they don't want to be secure to the extent that they're willing to be inconvenienced. Yeah, I think that's well said. I was really excited to talk to you because um, you are a different type of leader than I am used to, building a really different type of company. And everything that you seem to do is very first principled. I don't know, I guess before I even get into all the things, do you feel partially like being in Waterloo away from the Silicon Valley thought bubble gives you the ability to resist temptation to follow conventional wisdom? I do. I do. And I've said something before that I think is important. I I think Silicon Valley plays a big role in tech companies, ours included. Will that continue? I think for the foreseeable future, it will. But I think there is an advantage of starting it outside of, of Silicon Valley. You know, when we first built One Password, and even to this day, our mantra has been build a good product, support the heck out of your customers. That's how you build the company. It isn't by customers, this, that, or the other thing. It's very, very focused on the customers because that's who you're doing it for, right? And there's two sides of it, of the business you have to focus on. One side is very much product-driven. The other side is the business side. You have to understand what do your customers want? What are they willing to pay for? Like, where is the value to them? And I think one of the challenges with, with... Certainly some of the businesses in Silicon Valley is funding's a little too easy and a little too immediate. And all of a sudden it's get users. And users are great, but users are different than customers, right? If people are willing to give me free cars, I'm willing to take any and all free cars people are willing to give me. But that doesn't mean that I'm willing to go and spend my money on those cars a month later. That's the challenge. And so I think when we looked at it, we didn't really think that way. We didn't think, oh, well, we've got to know where the value is. We sat there and, and said, hey, we've got to make money because we don't have funding and we've got, you know, employees and we've got to pay for them. And, you know, I remember uh, Sarah in particular. So Sarah's one of the founders and she dealt with the finances and she and I were always like, we want to be extra safe. Like, we want to know that if we hire a person, we can absolutely pay them even if something bad happened and we didn't make, you know, a bunch of sales for six months or something. That was just how we thought. And it was, it was so we could sleep at night, frankly, it was so we could sleep at night more than anything else, but it grew the company in a way that you really started to understand where is the value in your product and to listen to the customers because they're trying to tell you where the value is. Your value, your valuation, I should say, 
last raised at six point two billion. You did not raise any money for fourteen years, and Excel did the Series A two hundred million dollar check, biggest check I think they've ever written in uh, November of twenty nineteen. Then you did a series of consecutive rounds, another hundred million in Series B, and then another six hundred and twenty million in Series C. So you went from nothing to just shy of a billion dollars raised in three years. Can you sleep at night now? <laughs> well, previous discussion aside, <laughs> as long as it's on the couch with the computer on my that's lap. Right, that's right. I look at the, the raises very much as each raise has to have a purpose. We're in a fortunate position where we don't, we don't need the money. As you said, we were bootstrapped for 14 years and we were cash flow positive all of those years and, and remain so. But that's not always enough. And so I remember in sort of mid-2019, and I built a relationship with a, a lot of the VCs over the years. They're smart people. And even though at the time I didn't need their money or funding, you know, I could learn a lot from them. But it was, you know, sort of middle of 2019. And we were still about half engineering, half customer support, build a product, support the heck out of your customers. But I said, you know, I think it's time for us to what I called grow and grow up as a company. You know, imagine if we did have world-class sales. We were getting a lot bigger companies as customers and they needed MSAs and some of the the things that big companies needed. Uh, we wanted to have the ability to uh, support businesses better. And, and so I, I looked at it and I said, well, how do I get world-class go-to-market? How do I get world-class marketing? How do I get world-class finance? And the truth is I couldn't get that on my own. I don't know how to get that. And also because we had been such a private company and hadn't done any raises, nobody had a clue we were successful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember looking at the different sites online that guess what your revenue is. And we were about a hundred people at the time. And I think they guessed our revenue was 2 million. I'm like, how do you pay for a hundred people with 2 million in revenue? It was just all wrong. And so, you know, I went to Excel, who is a fantastic company and Arun, our partner is a fantastic individual. And, you know, it took a while, obviously, and many long discussions with Dave Servers to Natalia and I about what it would mean to have a, a VC and the fear that comes with it, which I would say now is largely unfounded, but uh, certainly a good discussion to have. And we said, this is how we can raise a bit of courage capital and also get it out there in terms of we are a successful and growing company and we can attract the talent that we've now got in Jeannie and Julian and Kat, you know, you know, Melton and all the, all of the folks that we've hired in, in particular at the most senior levels. What's the fear? What was the fear? The fear was loss of control. There's the two founding families, Dave Sarah of Natalia and myself. It's, you know, we call ourselves the gang of five and uh, we would go on a cruise ship for a director's meeting. We would legit work. Don't get me wrong, but it was just like, it was the five of us that had the decisions to make. I remember in 2014 when we decided we were going to add B2B because up until the time we were consumer only. And, you know, we made that decision extremely quickly. And our fear was, will we still be in control in both real terms, in terms of any constraints that they may put us on us formally and in quasi real terms and, in, 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 you know, the pressure that they would put on us because we didn't have the experience. And this is maybe the negative side of not being in Silicon Valley, that none of us had that experience before right. to know if it would be positive or negative. But that I think that was a justifiable fear. I don't know, like it didn't come true in any stretch of the imagination, which was nice. I think we were also fortunate that we were in a position to where we could by and large set the terms of any investment that was made into us. But that was the, the biggest concern. Yeah, that makes sense. Take me back to the point where the whole company is 
product and customer success, basically support success. When you started having interest from big customers and they were like, Shiner, we need an MSA. You're selling a security product to like some of the largest enterprises in the world. And you're like, yeah, you know, that makes sense. Who's doing that? You clearly were hiring after the signals, not ahead of the signals. (laughs) And that seems to be a theme throughout the company, just very judicious, which honestly is refreshing and very different than the way that what we generally see. But who would do that work? Like, how do you even do, what do you do? I mean, you start outsourcing. Again, you know, I remember at the time we started getting businesses and then to your point, like they would come in, they would say, we'd like to have an MSA. And so, you know, off to Google, we went, what is MSA? I mean, you know, oh, it's a master services agreement. Okay, got it. You know, respond back as if we knew. Uh, but I mean, it is it is being nimble. And then, yeah, we had obviously companies that we dealt with from a legal point of view, even just for closing books and things like that. We outsourced a lot of that for quite a while. And then eventually we hired an in, you know internal lawyer. And now we've got a chief legal officer and she's got her team of 10. But it is a lot of do it yourself. One of my favorite examples was, you know, back when we decided to do marketing. Now, marketing is is very, very broad. So we were doing marketing for a long time in terms of just Dave's newsletters and things like that. But I, I remember we wanted to try and do some Google ads and it was just Rustam and I. Rustam and I were just like, well, let's go play with the Google ad manager and you know, start bidding on some keywords and things like that. We had no idea what we were doing and but it was fun. It was fun playing. The problem is it's at a certain level, it's, you know, it is real money. It is real business. You want somebody who knows what they're doing. So at some point I ended up outsourcing sort of the SEO, SEM side of it to, again, to a, a company, actually to a, a bunch of friends of mine that I, in my previous company that had gone off and started a an SEO and SEM company. And then of course the goal was to bring that in-house, which is what we've done now. But yeah, it's fun because it starts largely with, you know, again, myself or the founders and that and, um, you quickly get over your head. <laughs> Do you have any functions or parts of the company? Because I imagine they all burst at the seams and then you're like reacting to that. Are you like, you know, I wish we got a little ahead of that one. Like, are there any that you look back like, you know what? We could have maybe hired ahead of that. Oh yeah, many. Two that come to mind. So one, and I want to be careful. Like I loved my time at IBM. I just I state that I've got blue in my blood. I love my time at IBM. But there were some things that I remember we took because uh, Dave actually Dave worked for me at IBM. Um, spent a bit of time at IBM, and so I remember for a long time we were like we're never going to have managers. That was a thing because we just in some cases didn't have good experiences there with managers. They were limiting. It was you can't go around them, and we wanted a company where anybody can go to anybody. And I still want that company, but we didn't have a manager for a long time. And I can't remember how big we were, 100-ish people at the time. And we finally decided that we were going to have our first ever manager because customer support was getting quite large and and it really needed um, more organization and, frankly, management than we had. So we made Rob our first ever manager. And I remember, you know, Dave Ristam, Sarah Natalia, and I talking, I don't know, a couple of weeks later going, these manager things are great. We need more of them. <laughs> and it was, you know, so there was a little bit of, of, again, that hesitation and fear perhaps in that case, but it was a case where absolutely in hindsight, yeah, we should have had them far ahead of time. I would actually say the same thing for funding in our case. I would have absolutely gone the same route that we did in terms of being bootstrapped for many years. But I think we were probably about two years late going to funding in the sense that I think the funding has 
really allowed us to make significant dramatic improvements, especially the culture of the company, the size of the company has changed for the positive, which is part of what you know we had concerns about, but also just our ability to support our customers, sell to our customers. And I, I think in hindsight, I would have done that a couple of years earlier. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're at 100, 120 people, no managers yet. What is the org structure? Yeah, so the org structure on the engineering side. Well, at the time. Yeah, at the time. There was Dave and Rustam that were there. So Dave Rustam and I are all engineers by background and Dave and Rustam better ones than I am. And so they were leading a lot of the architecture and we had the concept of team lead. So again, I remember at the time we had like an iOS team and I think Michael Fay led it and an Android team and Michael Verde led it and things like that. So we had some team leads, even though we all had funny names at the time, like at the time we got to pick our names. And, and so instead of having a name that had to do with your role, we would have like a droid developer where they would choose the name droid developer and things like that. But there was de facto team leads. We just didn't want them called that. And more importantly, we didn't want people being limited to only talk to their team lead or go to their managers in the old sense of if they had a good idea or they had a concern. And that was the the big thing. And so ultimately they would come to typically either Sarah or I at the highest level in sort of the go-to people. And Was the company at that point actually just developers and customer support people? For the most part. So we had started to build some, so for instance, some sales folks. We had Dini at the time who came in and helped us start a sales team, start a team that would really- How big was the company at that point? Right Again, right around 100, right around 100. I know at the end of 2019, uh, we were 170 people. So it would have been about a year before that. So I'm going to say about 100 people. Now we were all inbound. So, and to this day, we're all inbound for customers. So when I say uh, a sales team, it was really, think of it as like B2B sales support. So a Mm -hmm. customer comes and they've got a number of questions or they, you know, if they're a big enough customer, obviously they're going to negotiate a price. And so that was, you know, we grabbed a number of our folks, most of them out of the customer support team. And I think we had six or seven of them and started to have people who can answer customer questions. And gosh, for one really large customer, I remember Dini, uh, I think there's three of us, Dini Grant and I, we, we actually like flew to that customer, which was like super novel, but it was, <laughs> you know, it was fun, but it was the start of it. But for the most part, again, engineering customer support, obviously when I say engineering customer support, design and documentation and things like that for people to design up the products always been, I think one of our strongest suits from both the usability point of view and just, you know, adding some moments of delight and also, you know, documentation around the customer support side, but it was really with the goal of writing help articles and things like that. Yeah. You were the adopted founder. You did not actually start the company. Did you, you joined as the CEO? I joined as the CEO, kind of an interesting story there. So I, I joined, yeah. So again, Dave and, and Sarah and I knew each other uh, back from the IBM days and we actually lived up the street from each other. So we had known each other for quite a while. So that was, you know, made it easier. But I joined when we were about 20 people back a little over 11 years ago. And the purpose, I signed our contract that I think uh, Sarah wrote up as the CEO. But at the same time, we didn't tell anybody in the company for about six months. They knew I was coming in to help lead and things like that. But we didn't want to just say day one. Everybody at work calls me Shiner, so I'll use Shiner. But, you know, hey, Shiner's the CEO. They said, here, Shiner's going to help. And then it was about six months later that 
I hadn't screwed things up too badly. And they're like, okay, Shiner's the CEO. But yeah, that was the purpose of me joining. And your title even today is Chief Eliminator of Obstacles on LinkedIn. I love that. Why do you do that? I mean, that's what I do, right? If I think of a CEO, one of my number one jobs is to hire a whole bunch of people smarter than me, right? To hire. So my first exec hire was Jeannie as my CFO. And she'll know obviously more about finance than I'll ever know. And then Julian from a go-to-market point of view and Aaron from a legal point of view and Pedro and so on and so forth. My job is to really get the obstacles out of their way and out of our company's way so that we can make progress. I mean, sure, I a lot more focused on the product side per se and help with the product vision in that. But again, to me, it's all about how do I allow the thousand plus now people that we've got move forward. And that's something that I think is super important, at least for me as a CEO. I know everybody's going to be different. Also, at times, a little frustrating. That is, I tell every single person at the company, in fact, when they join, they get a little care package and it's got a you know written note from me and it says right on there, reach out to me if you think I can help. And I mean that. I'm a Slack person, so I like sort of the Slack type of approach versus email, but I just want people to reach out to me because it's not only does that hopefully help them, but it helps me understand what's going on in the company and really where are the challenged areas that... I can start to look at as an obstacle we need to overcome. What's the last big obstacle that you had to eliminate? Big one. The reality is, isn't your day basically spent eliminating obstacles? Like at some point, aren't the things that are coming across your desk? I was just with the Grammarly CEO, Rahul, and he's like, Jubin, most of the shit that comes to me is not the fun stuff. Most of the stuff, if it could have been solved without me, it's getting solved without me. Let's assume that most of the things that are coming your way are obstacles. What's a big one that you had to go unblock that comes to mind? I think one of the big ones, and we're in the process of unblocking it, I would say that way. Um, It may seem small, but it's actually quite large. And that is, we need to do less. We need to say no to more things so that the things that we are working on and are focused on can be done quicker. And that's a culture change, right? It's a change in approach. And that's something that I believe in very strongly. And it's something that we are now pushing through where we can look at it and say, hey, we have a number of really exciting, fairly big things that we're working on for the future. And we need to work on those. We need to focus on those. And I find that that a lot of times people get caught somewhat in the trap of, here's this feature or here's this, you know, whatever it is that I'm adding and it has real value. And and I can look at it and I can say, yes, you're right. It has real value, but that's not where we need to focus right now. And I think if people look at it, what they're working on, they don't believe it has value. It's easy for them to let it go. But if they think it's, you know, it's a good feature, they think it's a good ad, then they can get caught up in, but this is going to really add value. And there's a difference between adding value and here's the areas of focus we've got where we think there's the most value and we've got to focus there. So I would say changing, I hate to use the word culture. It's not really culture, but changing the approach we're taking, that's a tough one. And that's one that's going to take far more than just me, but it has to be led by me. As the company grows, especially, you know, you're getting into the thousands now, the discipline required for focus, I bet it's actually even scarier because now you're operating from a place of abundance rather than scarcity, meaning you have a billion dollars in the bank. You have way more resources and people supporting projects. And so I bet you that there is a, especially with your DNA from growing this company up, I bet you that that's top of mind for you pretty much every day, all the time. It is. It's both in terms of 
and like at the beginning of 2020, 178 people. Now I forget the number, but we've passed a thousand employees not that long ago. And that's incredible growth. And you're right. Almost every time you double, there's a change that needs to be made in terms of structure, in terms of approach. And some of it's a little less fun than the others. Like I remember, so we have all hands calls. Today was our all, all hands calls. And it's usually once a month or now it's a, every couple of months. And it used to just be everybody was on Zoom and everybody, you know, had their speaker muted for the most part, but had their faces there. And like, you know, it was just a Zoom call of 200 people, then 300 people, then 400 people. But at some point that got too many and there'd be too many people would forget to mute and somebody's phone would be ringing and somebody would be answering that, you know, and it got to where now we had to do more of like a webinar style where it's just the speakers that are there. And it's like, I'm missing people's faces, right? You feel like you're talking with them instead of to them. There's all of these sorts of changes, but getting people to go in the same direction is without question, the most challenging. And it's not a matter of people going off in whatever direction they want. We're trying to go in this direction. And I can state that to the best of my ability, and it may be good enough, it may not be, but I guarantee you a week later, a number of those folks are going off by five degrees. It's not by 90 degrees, but it's by five degrees, right? And and then a week after that, they're going off by another five degrees and another five degrees. Pretty soon they're going off by 90 degrees. It's that level of just keeping everybody aligned that becomes extremely challenging. Yeah, I think that's well said. Peter Thiel has this thing that he used to do at PayPal, where if you meet with him, he'll only talk to you about your priority. The one thing, he only allows you to have one thing that you care about, one priority, and he would not talk to you about anything else. Now, let's just say that's the Peter Thielian most extreme version, but it makes sense. I think every company probably goes through a point where they try OKRs, right? Objectives and key results. And we've been trying those with varied success, I'll say. But the purpose of that is exactly what you're talking about. The purpose of that is to sit there and say, almost anybody in the company, here are your objectives. Here's what you should care about, what you should focus on. And more importantly than that, or equally importantly, at least is, and here's how it ladders up to what the overall company is trying to do. So you understand not just why you're doing, why your focus is X, but how it benefits the company. And I think that's good. I'm not, I don't think I could quite Peter <laughs> deal the the approach, but I like the, the general concept. I was having this conversation with Aaron Levy from Box, who, let's just say if you're on one end of the scale on how you built your business, let's say he's on the other, okay? And we had the same conversation. The conversation was basically, would you doing it over again? Because he took all this venture money and grew very inefficiently. Sales and marketing spend was like 50%. And they grew quickly. And part of the reason why they grew quickly was because, you know, his rationale was, look, I think I would rather than slow down my growth rate and take way less money and spend way less money because we were in a competitive environment like Google's trying to kill us. We need to take the oxygen out of the room. And once we get a customer, it's hard for us to lose that customer. Now, you're in a different world. It's B2C and then kind of grew up to be B2B. But do you reflect back and think, could we have grown more quickly and would we have wanted to do that? Yeah. Uh, the one thing I do think is I think success is at those edges. The worst thing you can do is try and be a bit of both. 
try and be that company that's going to take just enough funding from day one that they can grow, but not enough that they can grow ambitiously or grow quickly. I, I, I think you really do want to stick at one of those two edges. If we were to take that approach, it would have been exactly that. It would have been how many users can we get? Can we just get as many users as we possibly can? Can we then find a way to monetize it 14 years later, as opposed to take funding 14 years later? And I think that's actually a fair approach. I, I, I really do. I think part of the difference that I see is for us, the customer was the mission. So when I say the customer was the mission, it was interacting with the customer that brought us to a certain extent, the most joy. And we learned a lot about the customers. And I remember, you know, even on the early years, at the end of each day, we would try and empty out the customer queues and things like that with customer support. And that would, you know, would be everybody, including Dave, Sarah, Rooster, Natalia, and I, we'd all be sitting there just trying to answer the customers because you learn so much. And I do worry if we were to take approach where it was taking a lot of funding and then trying to grow the number of users you get as quickly as you can, it's not to say that we can't go with the customers, but you're going to get a lot, a lot more customers. I feel that those customers are going to be, it'll be a lot harder to listen to them because of A, the vast numbers of them, but also because I think their users, and again, I, I don't want to make too big of a deal of users versus customers, but I think that there's a difference there if it's, I don't say buying customers, but I don't have a better word than that. Let's say we put out a free tier from day one or things like that. They're going to have a different opinion of the value or where the value is than a customer who's paying for it. And so I think you take one approach or you take the the other approach. I don't really think either are, are necessarily the right approach. I do think it is situational. And like you said, if, if you're in a, a situation where, hey, this is already very competitive and we need to just come in and get everybody on, you know, using our product and then we'll figure it out. I think that can be reasonable, but I think you should be on the edges. Would you say you were in a are or were in a competitive market? I mean, I think it's more competitive now than it even was, to be honest with you, 18 years ago. But I think the competition is, I struggle a little bit with the word competition in the sense that I don't know that it's a competition in terms of the vast majority of the businesses that we're selling to. They come to us, they know where the product that they want to use. And then, sure, we have a negotiation versus the, you know, us being a competitive situation. We're replacing sticky notes. We're replacing Excel spreadsheets, right? We're replacing people using Fluffy Cat for people to store their passwords, for people to store their passwords, especially on the business side. But I would say there's a, if you look at it, especially on the consumer side, having the platforms out there, we have to move at the speed of technology. We have to show where and why we are going to be more valuable than just using the password manager in your browser. And by all means, like use the password manager in your browser over using nothing. I'm not saying that they're bad by any means. We just need to be better. And I would say that's the competitive side is how do we continue to move at the speed of technology and stay better? Yeah, maybe to your earlier point, competition is very inward in that respect. Like the competitive nature comes from not necessarily looking to your left and right, but rather what can you do internally? You're replacing sticky notes. <laughs> we are. And, and and I think it's a something that everybody can understand and can immediately just bring into themselves, right? Like everybody understands that they're either using something like a password manager or they realize that they're not doing something that's good enough. It doesn't mean they'll change. And that's the other challenge. But I think for people who don't use a password manager, they're not proud of the approach they're using. Are they using the same password everywhere or variants of it? Or they've got their scheme, right? We hear all the time, we've got my scheme where I use 
this thing that's only known to me. And then I change it subtly for each website. But the problem is known and people can certainly uh, take that to heart. And now it's a case of how do we be so convenient that it's actually easier to use us than it is to use Fluffy Cat for all your passwords. And that's, to me, the hurdle we have to surpass. Yeah, I think that's well said. Can you talk about Customer Support Mondays, speaking of customers? Yeah, so Customer Support Mondays, now I'll be I'll be honest, we don't do that. We don't do that anymore. You wish you did? I wish I did. I mean, there's good and bad in doing it now, uh, just because our customer support staff themselves are so much so professional and so much better at at, at answering um the tickets than i or others then shiner be. falling asleep with the laptop on his then, lap. then me falling asleep i still answer tickets um i still get people reaching out to me but yeah so, so customer support money so the what was the purpose of customer support money because that's got to persist the purpose of customer support monday uh you know we had a customer support team again it was a very big part of our company it's always been that way and it still is uh, we we have hundreds of people that that work in customer support and yet another team in customer success back a, a few years ago we took monday every week and everybody in the company would do customer support now it it took a few different variations we started off where everybody was actually in the queues answering customers or in the forums or wherever they were and then it got to oh, over time where it was Mondays when, you know, if you're in engineering, you could work on engineering, but only work on fixing the bugs that customer support had said were the high priority bugs and things like that. But the idea was, how are we going to build a good product? It's going to be by listening to our customers. And you could see that really quickly. I, it was fantastic to watch. I still use engineering because again, back then, <laughs> yeah, you know, we were either in, you know, half of us in, in design and engineering or half of us in customer support. You know, as an engineer, like you want to go and build something new, right? You want to go and build that new feature. You want to go like, we've always got great ideas that, that we can add. And sometimes it becomes challenging for, you know, the customer support team to sit there and say, hey, there's this thing that's frustrating. If it's a bug, it's a little bit easier to fix. But if it's just a, a feature that people aren't quite understanding or it's not doing quite what they want, that's sometimes hard for customer support to get in there and, and influence engineering who's off trying to create the new uh, wonder feature. And so you put an engineer there having to answer that in support queues and they've answered to the fourth customer about that same problem. And the next day they're like, you can't stop them. They're, they're, they're updating that feature. They're making it better. And that's what we want, right? That's, it's such a wonderful way to get our own folks to understand what it is that the customers are seeing and, and improve the product. Yeah. Could you also talk about hiring by doubling? Yes. I first talked to Dave and Rustam. This was, you know, whatever, uh, six months or four or so before I actually started. I said to them, I'm going to double the size of the company. They didn't believe me. They didn't do, what would we possibly do with 40 people? It can be a little uh, mind-blowing situation. But I said, over there's Mike. Mike's doing an awesome job, but Mike's super busy. We could have another Mike. Oh, look at over there. There's Sue. Like Sue's doing an awesome job. Like, wouldn't it be nice to have a, a second Sue? And that's how I've always looked at it. From that perspective, I can double the company because it's hard for me to look at it and say, Mike's an awesome person. Let's go hire 20 more Mikes. Like, I don't know what we do with 20 more Mikes. But when I think of a Mike and, you know, whatever Mike's doing, whether it's writing code or supporting or designing, that person, like almost everybody in our company, they're busy. They've got more on their plate than they could do. And imagine what we could get done if we had two of them. And for the most part, that's true. Obviously, there's some special roles where you've got enough or things like that. But doubling, again, me as a mathy, doubling gets you big pretty quickly, right? You know, 20, 40, 80, 163, 26, 40, and boom, here we are over a thousand. 
But that's how I've always looked at it was from a standpoint of I can double the size of the company, but I don't know how to 10x it just because I don't know what I would do with all those folks. Does that ever or did that ever break down where there was a function? Maybe Mike in XYZ product function was actually not very good. However, you desperately needed the function and you actually needed to double the function. However, Mike wasn't pulling his weight. And so you thought, well, actually, this specific thing is not that necessary, but it's actually really necessary. You just have the wrong person in there. Can't there be a little bit of, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm making stuff up, but. Uh, No, I mean, no question, especially when you're smaller, right? When we're 50 people, when we're 75 people, you do look in many cases at the person as the function and vice versa, right? And so it's not going to be true in sort of a generic, like, hey, we're hiring an iOS engineer. We've got five iOS engineers. You know, you're going to look at the team. But if we hire somebody to be in product design and it's our first real product designer, you're going to look at that person. You're going to say, this is what a product designer is and does. It reminds me in an odd way of food. My dad's side's Polish and my babsha was the made the best food ever. But whatever she made to this day, I assume that all people make that. And I assume that that's what Polish people make, right? And it's probably not true, but that's just my frame of reference. And so you're right, that can happen. Nowadays, obviously, with the different orgs we've got, I've got, you know, like I said, people much smarter than me in each of the leading each of those orgs, and they have a much better sense of what they need. So it's a little bit more organized than just doubling. But that's how it was. Yeah, it makes sense. You have Ryan Reynolds doing some really funny commercials for you. You know, when I forget my lines on set, there's always someone there to save me. Hence my latest innovation, the password supervisor. Streaming password? Private Ryan. Right. You don't need to. Your password's off. Email password. Replying. Ryan. Is there a no G. G? Healthcare password. Not dying, Ryan. No G. Those aren't his passwords. I installed one password months ago to secure everything. Meditation password? Van Milder. <laughs> Have your assistant download the 1Password app now. This is the 1Password way of doing non-traditional things to, in this case, raise awareness for your brand. It would be way too traditional for you to just take the company public, God forbid, and do a marketing event that way. Cross your mind. I got to imagine as the as a control freak, that's got to be real scary. This idea of the five amigos going on a cruise, going public is a long way away from that. I don't know. You don't even have to get into the nuance of it, but just emotionally, that's got to feel a little bit like, boy, we're already a billion dollars in the bank and a thousand people. And I feel ahead of my skis here. Like, can't imagine being a public company or how do you emotionally relate to that? Oddly enough to me, it's less frightening than when we were the five, because as you as a company grow, as I've grown with the company, I, I don't know if it's the same for everyone, but as I've grown with the company, I started to recognize there's the scope of what you can control. And then there's the influences that are external. And I, I use external somewhat Lucy, you know, our investors are on the board and that, I mean, they have some real influence, but we have to run our business. We have to understand what's best for one password. And that's me and my, you know, executive team. And we have to build the product paths that we think are going to be right for us. We have to look at it in terms of investments and M&A and all of those sorts of things in terms of really how it's best for the company. And you have to listen to the influences that are coming. You have to listen to the feedback and things like that. 
But you got to recognize that we're the ones that know our business the best. And so in many ways, the fears that I've seen of outside influence and things like that, without question, they're there, they're an influence, but they don't have, I don't want to say the power to make the change. They're there to influence, to guide, to give you their point of view, however strongly they may hold it. We need to run our company. And so when I look at, at things, whether it's IPO or that, to me, we're in a really fortunate position. We are still growing quite well. We're cash flow positive. We've got, as you said, courage capital, I like to call it in the bank for things like M&A and stuff like that, as, as it makes sense for us to uh, move our strategy forward. Am I thinking of different exits like an IPO or that? Of course, like it's foolish not to, but that's not what guides us. That's not a totally. goal. It's a step on the path and, and building a durable business is what really is our goal. Totally. But you are also very guided by your employees. And I have a feeling that you've had a lot of employees that have been with you for a very long time. And look, when a child is born, turns out you still have to raise them for 18 years. But boy, is that a pretty special moment when that child is born? And I don't know, I think of being in New York City with the families of those early employees together, reflecting independent of the liquidity. And there's other ways to manufacture liquidity, but independent of that, there's just got to be something emotional to that. Don't you think like there's got to be something, we have a ticker. Correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe I'm over romanticizing it. I think there's a ton of different opportunities to look at and reflect and be just as excited. So again, like was a Clavio that was there? It was yesterday, I think, right? I'm sure that they had a fantastic moment. And I would imagine for any company that goes for an IPO, it, w- it would be a fantastic moment. And if that's in our future, it will be a fantastic moment. But there's so many of those that we have. And to me, the ones that excite me, we just you know uh, launched the passkey save and fill. That's huge. I mean, passkeys are, I think, set to change the world. Imagine if we can get away from having to remember these passwords and yet do it in a way that's more secure and do it in a way that that is actually starting to prevent phishing, which is, I think, what we're all seeing in 2023 is a huge, huge issue. So I, I think there's many opportunities that we've got to get excited. And I think to me, that what excites me the most is our ability to drive the product forward in a way that really helps people in businesses. And I think that's when we hire, we want to hire people that are ambitious. We want to hire people that are go-getters, but we want to hire people that understand and believe in what we're doing as well. Yeah. So I, I think that would be an exciting moment without question. I'm not going to deny that it would be, but I think that there's many of those. Yeah. I think it's really well said. Is there a point where you have felt least competent to be the CEO, like <laughs> company size, where you're like, go home to your wife and you're like, oh God, like, is this still my ride? <laughs> yes, a hundred percent. I mean, there's, oh, what it, what's that term for it? Um, I can't remember the term for it, but yeah, without question. Uh, imposter syndrome. Impo- thank you. Imposter syndrome, a hundred percent where I'll be, especially if, if I see something, whether it's me in an article or things like that, or out there talking to Ryan Reynolds and stuff like that. It's a hundred percent. It's someday they're going to find out that I'm not qualified for this. What gives me confidence is I look at almost all, especially technology companies. And I use technology simply because I'm more familiar with them, but 
so many of the technology companies have grown up the same way where they've got, you know, either the founders or or people brought in early who grow with the companies. And it's been tremendously exciting to grow with the companies. And I, I feel as long as I can continue to learn and grow, then this is going to be a good place for me. And I think if I can make sure that I am providing back to the company and really uh, showcasing the company in how it is and in, and in the light that it deserves to be, then then I'll continue to do this. Are you willing to share a moment where you asked yourself, am I good enough to do this? Like when, when was the last time that you asked yourself that question or maybe asked your partner? Uh, I won't go the last time, but I'll tell you probably to me the funniest time. And so back uh, series A and I was going to be on TV, live TV. And this was like the first time I was going to, I've ever been on live TV that I can remember. I was so nervous for days ahead of time. I was nervous. I remember sitting in the, um, it was like a green room, but it was like I had my makeup done and everything. And I could see over like 50 feet away where they had the booth and, and the previous talker was still talking. And I'm sitting here drinking ice water. And I'm drinking ice water because the last thing I want to do is be like sweating to death, right? So I'm nervous. I'm drinking ice water, drinking ice water. And so commercial hits. I go over to the stage. They mic me up and they asked me to count to 10 and my tongue was frozen. <laughs> I couldn't say I was like, through tree. It was, it was the, the funniest moment. It was all fine by the time the commercial was done, but it was just, it's those sorts of things that, that afterwards you're just like, I survived. It actually went surprisingly well, but yeah, it's those moments that you're just like, boy, like the people who do this day in and day out, they've got to have something special I don't have. If one password disappeared tomorrow, what would you do? How would you spend your days? Oh my, uh. That's a good question. People have asked me before, like, hey, would you just go off and be a farmer, right? Because I love it. I love it, I think, because I do it as, as little as I do. And I think after a couple of weeks of not doing anything, uh, it would drive me, it would drive me bonkers. I would, I would find something to do. It would be technology again. The one interesting question I've asked myself is, would I be willing to be in a position that's not a CEO? Have I forgotten how to have a have a boss? And it's an interesting question that I don't know the answer to. I'd like to say, of course I would, because I don't want to have the ego that says I can't. But being blunt, like it's nice to be in a position where if I do really care about something, I can make that happen. But I, I would be right back into technology. That's who I am. That's what I love. There's more problems to solve. When you think about the pros and cons of the CEO thing, like what are the things that you ask yourself? Like, all right, well, I don't think I could do it because... I, well, I'm not very good at taking orders. At least that's for me what I would think. Like, you know, I'm not very good at having others tell me what to do. I, I don't know. How do you uh, how do you draw that list up? Well, partially, I feel like there's my main skills have all gone, right? Like I, I remember one of the interesting transitions over time was going from engineer into true CEO because you call yourself what you want. At the early days, I was developing the product like everybody else. And, and then eventually it got to where I haven't programmed in a while, which is sad. But so I do worry about like, do I have any real skills left, right? You know, outside of helping lead a company. I do worry about that. And again, it's just sort of fear or failure from that perspective. But yeah, I do... I am vocal uh, with all the good and bad that comes with it. And I do worry about what would happen if there's somebody who I really like, if there's something I really thought was the wrong way to approach it. And I was being, being told, just go ahead and do that. Um, it's not often. Like if I look at my team, I'm wrong quite often. They're all, like I said, they're all smarter at their roles than I am. And together, I think we all work really well. But if there's something I really firmly believe in, I've got that opportunity to make that happen. I think that's what I would worry about is if there's something I really firmly believed in, but was told, 
no, we're not going to do it, then that would be a challenge to me. It's been a decade since I've, I've not been in this position. If you could go back and tell Shiner of almost 10, 12 years ago when you were starting at this company, something, if there's something you could tell them, I'm sure you've thought about this. What would you say? I would say it's going to be okay. There's just... Yeah, but wouldn't you only say that because it is okay? Yes, perhaps. But I think that this is, again, me, but there's so much worry, so much stress I have. And I think this goes with a lot of people. And I think it's something that everybody can try and remember themselves. I don't know that I've enjoyed it. That's the worst part to me. It's been the most incredible ride, but the most incredible ride by looking back as opposed to enjoying it on the way. Every moment's been a moment of fear, uncertainty, doubt, of stress, of worry. I would say it's going to be okay. Like enjoy things better. And I think we could have actually moved a little quicker. Maybe that's the other thing I would have said is just be a bit more ambitious, move a, a little bit quicker in some of the decisions that we've made. More times that you just got to trust your gut and go. And on the fear, anxiety, doubt, trust me, I relate to that big time. How though? How do you massage those negative emotions when the reality is you're like doing one of the hardest things possible in business, like starting a tech company from scratch without funding, like it's really hard. And part of me views it as a little bit of a prerequisite to success to have some insecurity and some fear of failure. I understand that you would give yourself that advice, but how would you operationalize it? So when I was at IBM, there was, I think, a great story here. So Mike Poland was my boss and I, my team lead had just left and I wanted to be the team lead. This was, I don't know, I can't remember, ages ago. I wanted to be the team lead. And so I remember going to Mike Poland, who was my manager and saying, Mike, I want to be the team lead. And he, he said to me, okay, but I'm not going to tell anyone. And I thought, well... <laughs> This guy's a jerk, right? You know, how am I supposed to lead? Blah, 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 blah. And six months later, I was a team lead. And that's when he told me, he goes, three people came to me that day and all said the same thing. They wanted to be the team lead. And I told them all the same thing. Go be the team lead. He said, a leader leads. All the internal emotions, all the internal challenges, like you have to take everything in, you have to make a decision, and then you have to go lead. That's what you need to do. By no means do I always think I'm right. By no means do I always think that I've got everything in place. You have to lead. You have to go somewhere and you have to go confidently. Like outwardly, you just have to say, this is where we're going and this is what we're going to accomplish. And I think, I'm not sure I would take the Mike Pullen approach with my own folks, but that approach was so powerful in terms of, well, you led. That's why you're in this role. You know, instead of giving somebody a title and saying the power comes with the title instead of giving somebody a, a role and the power comes with the role lead. Sure. A title and a role can help, but that's the part that I thought was the most powerful. I think that's the lesson I've, I've just taken with me is yeah, go lead. It doesn't matter how internally afraid or unsure you are. You take all of the information you can, you make the best decision you can, and then you just confidently go and, and drive forward. What a place to wrap. I appreciate you so much, Jeff. Um, amazing. I wrap these things the same way every time. The first, are you hiring? Are there any key roles that you want to shout out? Yeah, we're absolutely hiring. I would just say go to our website. We've got probably over 100 roles. We're still hiring quite a bit. More than customer support and product. 
<laughs> more than customer support and product, but also customer support and product. <laughs> <laughs> Last one. When you hear the word grit, who or what do you think of? Wow, that's a fantastic question. I think of the farmer, the person who goes, especially a farmer with animals. They're out there every day. Doesn't matter. They've got to feed their animals or milk the cattle every day, regardless. Rain or shine. It's a work of love, but it's hard work. Jeff Shiner, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.